Good afternoon, good evening, um, good morning, whenever and wherever you are listening to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yu. Welcome back. Thank you so much for coming back. Um, if you've been here before, that is. And if not, um, yeah, welcome. It's a new decade. And yeah, I just really, really, really have missed you and missed making this podcast and missed the momentum and kind of empowerment and sense of fulfillment that it gives me uh, to continue to work on my passions. And I know that podcasting is probably up there in at number one uh, these days. It's uh, become my full-time job again. And I'm just, I just love it. I love making this podcast more than life itself. Um, But somehow in the last month of my life, uh, things got a little bit crazy. Um, Going back to England for Christmas and going and visiting lots of old faces and friends and uh, family, of course, Um, spent a lot of time there. But I just was on the road and I had loads of luggage and, you know, it was my intention to get all these kind of interviews backed up and stacked up before I left, but I was absolutely manic with work. And, you know, obviously the day job kind of takes a priority and bill paying doesn't go away (laughs) and so I got really 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 enveloped in this kind of busyness um, that the festive sort of season brings upon us Um, and I was quite stressed actually in the run-up to Christmas I left Ibiza on the 14th of December headed back to England and it was just non-stop like visiting you know loads of old colleagues from the BBC having quite a few little nights out um, traveling on trains planes taxis tubes buses walking around dragging a suitcase um, and it was all quite intense um, mostly in a good way but um, I think what happened was I just the wind gradually decreased beneath my wings to the point where I kind of collapsed in a heap on Christmas day and was you know Uh, a wreck really really ill almost unable to swallow the lump in my throat was so big Um, my cough was just hacking and disgusting and I actually felt like I had a full-blown flu and I'm just never ill so that's the one amazing thing about living in Ibiza in the sunshine eating the food here being outside a lot I'm very grateful and one of the most amazing things I've really realized about living here is that I just I'm not exposed to the kind of lifestyle that makes me ill. Um, I'm also not really here in the winter, and I am this year, so it was kind of like a bit of a a wake-up call to get really sick over Christmas. And I I think, you know, when you stop, then your immune system generally tends to check out somehow and, you know, kind of give you a bit of a slap in the face and (laughs) a bit of a wake-up call and tells you who's boss, basically. So, unfortunately, not really being in England very often, I didn't have the opportunity to just do nothing. And as you should do when you're sick and depleted and run down and exhausted and a bit stressed. So, of course, you know, I got ill. Um, And I just don't feel like I've been able to really pop myself fully back on my podcasting perch since then. So I'm really sorry that this hasn't um, been coming out on the regs uh, since 2020 began or even at the back end of last year I just honestly 
haven't felt like it. And I just don't think after all that pushing and forcing and pulling and, you know, just manning up and drinking through it and, you know, just eating another meal that I really didn't want to eat over Christmas um, to be polite and to do as I should and all the socially acceptable things that I kind of (laughs) engaged in that I didn't really want to be doing. Um, I just, yeah, I was like, this is just one more thing that I just don't feel like doing. So it was really interesting for me to get to this point this morning. Um, I went to a breathwork class and as always with breathwork, I just felt this massive, massive shift in the aftermath. And I kind of realized as I was kind of laying there, like all, yeah, trippy and, you know, blissing out on the kind of sensations and openings of passage that had kind of, you know, been created within my body. And I just thought being in flow, maybe that is actually a decision rather than a thing, you know, maybe being in flow doesn't just automatically and organically pass over us. It it, it comes as a choice. Now, I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me on that one, but I have decided and I'm not listening to this little voice telling me that um, I don't feel like it. I don't feel good. I'm not, you know, balanced right now and I'm not doing anything until I feel right because I don't think you can get back into flow until you've decided (laughs) you need to get back on your perch. So that's an interesting little revelation that happened for me today. And I'm going to play you a little clip from Russell Brand, who I absolutely think is the most eloquent wordsmith in the world, um, because he's basically just um, started this beautiful free 12-step recovery program in January um, for free for 12 days. And each day you go through a new step. And I, of course, signed up because I just wanted to see what it was all about. And I'm just intrigued because I think what I notice with this rhythm of of going back to England um, and involving myself in all sorts of patterns of old behavior from being back and kind of out of my comfort zone, out of my routine, out of my regular daily existence is that you end up drinking too much, eating too much, da 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 But then when you get back into January, you know, apparently we're all supposed to be detoxing, not drinking, you know, levitating, meditating, praying, yogaring, I don't know, all these different things, like reaching our, you know, most enormous life goals and smashing um, the crap out of a new decade. And it's just like, Uh, Well, how do you shut down that extreme excessive behavior that just happened only two weeks before and suddenly become this little angel? And I've been really battling with this um, a lot. And I thought, just be really honest about it. I just don't think you can go from hero to zero and stay happy, stay content, stay uh, in flow. So this is something, when I watched the very first opening video, I just wanted to share a little bit of it with you because it really made me laugh and I just, I'm going to play it for you now. Changes mean that you are confronted by the fear that you were trying to avoid by indulging in that behaviour in the first place. That's why something as seemingly parochial and mundane as not looking at my phone, for me, can be a sort of 
like slices open the intestines of my self-obsession and dread of the world. Suddenly, here I am, eviscerated, confronted with, oh my God, the reason you were looking at your phone is because you can't bear to be you. The reason you're masturbating is because you can't bear to be you. The reason you're thinking, if I get that rise, if I get that job, if I make that movie, oh, it's because you can't bear to be you. And there's a reason that you can't bear to be you, and that's because there is no you. The entire thing is a construct made up of biochemical drives and memory. Not that you're not a unique and wonderful human individual as unique as your own fingerprint. Of course you are. The whole point of 12-step recovery is to recover the person you were intended to be. That assumes that there was an innate teleology that you were embarking upon as surely as a seed becomes a tree. No one would question that ordinary miracle that encapsulated there within the acorn is the miracle of the mighty oak. None of us questions that and few oak trees in their adolescent sapling stage have some overbearing father or negligent mother barking at them that they're too fat or they're not good enough or they'll never be as good as their brother tree. The journey of recovery, step two in particular, takes you back to a place where you recognise that you were going somewhere, that there is a better version of you. This is the beauty and the optimism of this programme, that you are not worthless, that your own belief that you are worthless is as much as an, an illusion that you could make yourself happy with a life of endless Ferraris and blowjobs. We know that's an illusion now, particularly if you're a fragile and awkward driver such as myself, I struggle anyway, even when I'm trying to stay bang on that highway code. A few twitches in the region of the groin is the last thing I need. Straight into the crash barriers. So I just really laughed a lot um, when he was talking about his phone and obviously, you know, <laughs> being given a blowjob while driving obviously was uh, quite an entertaining image. But I think, you know, what we're trying to say is you can't just all of a sudden um, shut down these little patterns of behavior that pop up when you can't deal with something. Um, but acknowledging them is step one. Being aware of a behavioral-ism is an amazingly beautiful thing. It's called awareness, you know. Being self-aware is is massive. Um, but I think ultimately what he was saying about just you can't bear to be you. Now, where does that come from? What's that all about? And why? And, and why is it that we always struggle, I think, to go back to our roots, to our familial homes and be in the bosom of our parents and possibly people that push our buttons a little bit? Um, and I had a little bit of that going on over Christmas. I moved into my parental home for the final eight days of my trip and I found it very challenging. And, you know, not because I don't, I'm not incredibly close to my parents. I love them dearly and I get on with them both famously. But when you are under the same roof 24-7 as an adult, you are very different. And it shines a light on things that you, you know, I left home when I was 18. I never looked back. I never moved back in. Um, and there's a reason that I was fairly keen to get to get out of there. Not because it was a bad place and I had a terrible childhood, none of that stuff. Just, you know, I was ready to go and spread my wings and be independent and make my own path in this world. And I think the point is that just some of the things that come up about, you know, when you are in a position where you can't actually control anything, um, you do possibly slip back into some behavioral things that um, really kind of show you um, where the work is basically and 
recently, um, I don't know if you, you maybe you're not particularly a fan or a follower, but Ramdas, uh, Ram Das is is one of the major spiritual gurus that I've kind of um, followed a lot of his teachings and um, his words really through the years. And sadly, he left us just before Christmas, and I was I was very sad about that. Um, but what it did was obviously made me go back through a lot of his words again and cherish them and notice them and explore them a little bit more deeply and to the point where I went to watch his film, film Fierce Grace. Um, and what I loved more than anything is this film is actually, uh, obviously the, the author of Be Here Now, but this book, sorry, the book is also called Be Here Now, but this film is, is way after that part of his life, after he's had a stroke. So he's much, much older. And it's just sort of, looking at that process of having had a stroke and how it showed him that he hadn't really gotten to the place he thought he had in his spiritual world. He had a lot more work to do because when he was having the stroke, the only thing that was going on in his mind was that he was looking up at the ceiling and sort of looking and admiring, you know, the fan and the paintwork and he said there was this white white light and he wasn't reaching out towards it and it made him realize that he had more work to do now you know we've all got work to do we've always <laughs> got endless endless work to do if we're willing to but I just thought that was so beautiful that you know someone like him would confess at that point in the game how humbling that was that he would feel that way and it kind of just again made me have a little think about things um and I just loved this little clip that I'm also going to play you before today's podcast begins from him about where we sort of begin or why we begin to have these certain behavioural patterns that make us who we are. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean we need to go on the 12-step recovery programme. I'm not suggesting that wasn't really why, why I played that clip from Russell. But I think, you know, a lot of the things that we do are escapism including coming to Ibiza and taking all the drugs. It's, um, you know, it's a fascinating beast that the human existence is and the suffering and pain that's incurred sometimes and the ways that we decide to hit the emergency eject button to get out of that, Um, whether that be, you know, drink, sex, drugs, parties, um, people, um, a million other things besides. So I just loved what Barandas, uh, Ramdas had to say um, about why, why we get to that point. So I'm going to play you this clip and then we're going to start today's interview with today's guest. Enjoy. Sun up, sun down. I know now. You are the one. I know. How can we love ourselves more? Please. Instead of the term, how can we love ourselves more, I'd like to ask, how can we accept ourselves more? Um, That in the way most of us have been socialized, the way in which a child gets, uh, learns, the initial learning, is that... um, 
the parent is under pressure to socialize the child, to make the child socially functional. And in doing that, they, um, they emotionally, whether they intend to or not, reward and punish the, the child for behaviors. And the result is that when that starts very early, before there is a lot of reasoning process between the parent and the child, the child develops certain emotional feelings that certain ways it is in its natural state are not acceptable. And the result is some feelings of unworthiness or inadequacy or something in most human beings as a result of socialization. Very few people ever come through socialization unscathed in some way or other. I mean, that's not an unfair statement, I don't think. Um, so in a way, you could see that ego or personality is in a way built upon, and that's where Freud understood it. He saw that the, the, the uh, repression of id or impulse life because of the way the society has to deal with a child's impulses to get it to be socialized usually is left with a feeling that um, somehow I'm bad. I have these things that are not acceptable. And um, so uh, then you build this social structure and often what you end up with is a personality that says, that's constantly looking to the world and other people, do you approve of me? Do you like me? Am I good enough? Am I acceptable to you? And uh, he, have I achieved enough? Here's a, and you get an A for effort and you feel good. And if you don't get the A, it's not like you feel nothing, you feel bad. And it's as if the baseline is negative, not zero. Do you hear the issue that I'm talking about? Now, um, so that you're constantly using your life experiences as a way to disprove a basic negative feeling about yourself. That's a very, very common thing in, in social structure and in human development, in ego development. Now, um, so most, many psychological systems, like Freud's system, for example, works primarily with negative going to zero. That's the, the domain that you work with. Right behind that is where the spiritual dimension begins, and that's a part that looks at the universe and just sees it as it is. It doesn't... See, the, the, uh, when you've got a negative thing, the opposite, when you're trying to undo it, you could undo it by ha emphasizing the positive. Like, if you don't like yourself, you could emphasize, I love myself, which is, how do we love ourselves more, is the question. Or we could say, let's go behind love and hate and find a place where we merely acknowledge ourselves, where we just allow our humanity. And we hear that there is negativity in us, and there is inadequacy, and we allow ourselves. And the word that I have come up with, I mean, that I'm finding most comfortable to work with, is the word appreciation. That we come to just appreciate what is. It's interesting, uh, the way I've looked at it, is that you go out into the, into the woods, and into the forests, and you look at trees and you appreciate the trees. You don't say that tree is good and that tree is bad because one tree is fat and one is thin or one is tall and one is short or one is bent and one is straight, unless you're in the lumber business. <laughs> For the most part, you just look at the trees and you, 
you appreciate them the way they are. They are what they are, and you can appreciate them. But the minute you get near humans, it's interesting that you immediately go into a judging mode. You come into better and worse. And you do that out of your own insecurity. You do that out of your own need constantly to be reassuring yourself. So you're saying that person is got more hair than I do, or that person is, is see, that's the one I picked. So. Uh, I wonder why that or or you go into uh, you find dimensions constantly judging and equating am I as good as am I equal to am I as good a mother as am I as beautiful a woman am I as effective a this a, a worker am I whatever it is whatever dimension and you get caught in constantly living in a judging realm and um, if you start to practice seeing people as trees I don't mean in the, you know, in the sense of just appreciating what they are, including yourself. It's just starting to appreciate yourself, appreciate your humanity. Like when I get, like I'm supposed to be, I'm Ram Dass and I'm, I've worked on myself and I'm supposed to be equanimous, loving, present, clear, uh, compassionate, um, accepting. Oftentimes I get tired, I'm angry, I'm petulant. I'm closed down. Now, for a long time, I get into those states and I would feel really embarrassed because that isn't who Ram Dass is supposed to be. So I would appear like I was warm, charming, equanimous, compassionate, and I, there was deviousness and deception involved. And then I realized that that is, that's bad business because that cuts us off from each other. And I had to risk my truth. I had to risk being human with other people and realize that what we offer each other is our truth. And our truth includes all of our stuff. And the first thing I had to do was accept my own truth. I had to allow myself to be a human being. And um, I think that I was very helped by my spook friend, Emmanuel, who, um, uh, my disembodied friend, who, when I said to him, Emmanuel, what am I doing on Earth? He said, why don't you try, uh, you're in, on earth, why don't you try taking the curriculum? Why don't you try being human? And I had always assumed the way to God was to deny your humanity and embrace your divinity. And then I realized that the way to truth might be through acknowledging the fullness of where I found myself to be, which was my humanity and my divinity. And not wallow in it, but acknowledge it. And not reverence it or judge it, just appreciate it, just allow it, allow my humanity. So I have gotten to the point now where I am what I am much more, and some people like it and some people don't like it. And if they like it, that's their problem. And if they don't like it, that's their problem. I don't take it all on myself and it, as much. And, um, well, it's a slow process. It's a slow process. Now, what I found was that, that, um, as I started to allow myself to be human more, just allowed what I am, things changed much faster in me. I mean, things fell away more quickly. It was as if I was locked into a model which was based on that negativity, that dislike of myself. And once I just allowed that I am human with all the foibles, things started to flow and I could feel change occurring in myself. And then I would start to experience my own beauty. 
And it frightened me because it was so dissonant and discrepant from the model that I had cultivated of myself over the years that I had to do good in order to be beautiful. And the idea that I just am, that what is, when you look at a tree or a rock or a river, it is in its own way beautiful. You look at decay, it is beautiful. I know Laura Huxley, who's a very dear friend, um, in her kitchen, she has these jars over the sink and she takes old uh, beet greens and orange peels and things and sticks them in water in these long, beautiful pharmaceutical jars. And then they slowly mold and decay and there are these beautiful decay formations and mold. And it's really garbage. It's garbage as art. And we look at it and it's absolutely beautiful. There's absolute beauty in that. And I've begun to expand my awareness to be able to look at the universe as it is and see what is called the horrible beauty of it. The horrible beauty of it. It's, I mean, there's horror and beauty in all of it because there's decay in all of it. I mean, we're all decaying. I mean, I look at my hand and it's decaying. And it's beautiful and horrible at the same moment. And I just live with that. And with that, I start to see the beauty in it. So we're talking about appreciating what is. Not loving yourself as opposed to not liking yourself, but allowing yourself. And as you allow, it changes. That's about, I think that gets behind the polarities. I think that's what's important. Okay? Question. Okay, so I'm not going to say so much more um, about Ramdas, but I just feel like that was a, you know, a really powerful message that he had there and we're all we're all enough at the end of the day um but it's how we cope with those moments when we feel like we're not and whether we can as he so beautifully put it just kind of experience it and sit with it and and not try and cover it up with food drink drugs and any of those other things but when that pain is there and when it's really getting too much you know, just sitting with it is um, deeply uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable and takes a lot of balls just to not run away from it somehow. Um, even exercising too much, you know, even going to the gym, even going for a long walk and just, you know, moving away from just kind of experiencing those feelings is um, something I, I, yeah, I find very difficult personally. So I just wanted to share all of this at the start of this podcast. It's just some little musings that I had over the last month. Um, and today's guest is someone who's uh, not really to do with any of that stuff. Um, he's an ex-music industry man and someone I've known for a really long time on the island. And he's doing some really, really amazing work um, for charity. Um, he's got a, a charity and an outfit called Last Night a DJ Saved My Life. And this year it's 10 years old and he's raised a hell of a lot of money um, for various causes around the world. So I really wanted to talk to him um, because he's one of the rare people on this island of Ibiza who gives back, who does a lot of work to help others. And it really comes from a deep, deep place of love. And I just really wanted to share you know, that's exactly what I believe that this podcast also does is share um, a little bit of that love that the island gives to me um, and the people that I interview that live here and 
the love that they experience from being here and the work that they do that you know ultimately shares that love with others so that is the purpose and premise of this podcast for 2020 I want to get some really great people on that share that message and I want to get really creative and I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper and um blow this kind of island open a little bit wider in terms of the healing world and see if we can really get some great spaces to offer and give back to people that maybe need a retreat that actually can't afford it um and if you have any suggestions of anyone that you'd like us to talk to do feel free to get in touch with us on just the good news please at gmail.com or follow us on instagram at the reset rebel okay this is uh here's johnny <laughs> I'm here in uh, probably, as you might be able to hear, it sounds a little bit like what I seem to remember the CBBC uh, broom cupboard was back in the day when I used to watch uh, children's television after school. Feels a little bit like that. And um, (laughs) I'm um, I'm joined by today's wonderful guest, which is, of course, uh, Johnny from Last Night, a DJ Saved My Life. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Finally, we've made it. We've, We've actually connected together after quite a few attempts. And uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Good to talk out live for you. Live and direct from the broom cupboard at the hub, which is um, obviously where, you know, a lot of these uh, podcasts in Ibiza are being born at the moment. Um, but it's really lovely to be here in this co-working space where I do believe uh, that you work out of on a, on a fairly on the regs. Yeah, yeah. I've been, we've been here for about uh, a year now, something like that. It's just really nice. I've been, I've, I've worked from home for about nine years and it's just nice to get around a group of p- people, and here's it's quite nice. It is a hub, it is a community, so and it's just nice to be able to share ideas and share things around, and just the nature of the work that we do. It's you're always reaching out for help, so it's the perfect place to ask those people help. I t- I couldn't agree more. I mean, I also work from home by myself, and you know, I'm kind of on my own for nine hours a day. I don't get a break really from that job when I'm when I'm into the news reading zone, and it's like. It's quite lonely being at home by myself and like I just feel like a, yeah, just a bit of a lone warrior back um, at the ranch where I kind of obviously live as well. So you kind of wake up and you, mm. you know, still in your gym jams and you walk to your desk and it's, you, basically you just don't yeah. see anybody all day. Yeah, and there's also, there's a feeling that you just don't stop work. It's quite hard to distinguish where's work and where's play, you know? Or, or, or you know, so you can either find yourself sort of interrupting work with just too much distractions and, you know, oh, I'll just go to the fridge again, I'll just get another cup of tea and I'll just do this and you go around in circles or or you'll do the opposite and you just be working, 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 working till early hours and then you're not phoning your friends, you're not getting in touch with people, you're not doing social things. And it it's I think it's just been an important change for me to take the work that I'm passionate about, and I can work 24 hours sometimes. If you, you know, I'm, I'm that driven by it. But it's it, if I come here, at least it, yeah, it creates that segregation between work and play. Mm. That that's the plan. It's not quite worked out like because I still take it back home a bit, but mm. it's it's working out better. Put it that way. I think find me a new business owner or a business owner of any description that doesn't take their work home with them. I think it's kind of part of the 
you know, part and parcel of the beast. It's not something mm. you can separate yourself from. It's, you know, very much part of you. And I think you take it with you wherever you go, the problems, the emails, the, mm. the to-do list. It's just never bloody ending. Um, but before we get into exactly what it is that you do do and what we're going to talk about on today's uh, episode, uh, you know, how did you end up living in Ibiza? Where, how long have you been here for now? I've been here. This is my 21st year. Yeah, so we moved over here in 1999. And uh, how did I end up here? Well, that's... Did you party like it was 1999? Oh, absolutely. In 1999, I certainly partied <laughs> like it was 1999, yes. and uh, But that wasn't the main reason at all what brought me here. I'd been coming here since the age of two. So uh, the fact I'm 50... That was in 1971 when I first came in with my parents. And, uh, and then they kept visiting a few times and it turned out my father ended up buying a little apartment just outside of San Antonio in the country there. And so that became a base for the family. Every family holiday it was straight over to Ibiza, straight over to Ibiza. And I shared that with my brother and we were here all that time. Didn't miss a year. And then when I was 16, I came and did a season with my brother who's a musician. He's five years older. And, uh, and yeah, and beyond that, then it was, yeah, right, well, I could do another season, I'll do another season. And then um, it, after, after getting the sort of travel bug, meeting so many international people here, decided to go further afield and um, took me on a long journey, traveling Asia for years and years and years, but coming back to Ibiza to earn a living as well in the summer. There's this whole sort of migration in Ibiza, which was quite a cool migration. It was sort of like you do Ibiza, then you go to Goa, or you go to Copangan in Thailand, or, or you just go travelling all around Asia or South America. And we were doing that for 10 years. And uh, when, when we sort of came to a bit of a, a standstill with that, for certain personal reasons, family deaths, things like that, and uh, we sort of looked at ourselves, me and my girlfriend, and it was time to have children, and we were like, well, where, where do we go and have children? And it was like, well, there's one place, isn't there, really? And, and that was it. We came, we came here to have children, and it took me a month. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a one-shot wonder, fantastic. <laughs> and that was it. My wife fell pregnant. Good God, Johnny, that's quite yeah. a quite a yeah big crown that you're wearing over there. Yeah, yeah, no, I was I was I was well impressed by that, <laughs> off the back of a party night. So, uh, yeah, that's how I, I've sort of ended up here. It was, it was more from family reasons, being first inspired to be here by my own family, thankfully. Um, they, weren't, they weren't here on the, on the hippie trip. They weren't here on a party trip. Well, my dad, you know, working class people. Dad was a bit of a musician as well, so there's quite a lively musician scene back in the 70s. So, you know, lots of piano bars and all that kind of thing, and he really liked that, and... It was just fun being here, you know, there, there was no tarmac on the roads and so you'd get these little seat bubble cars and you'd be, you'd be going off on a little, it really felt like you were going off on an adventure just, get, just to get to a beach, you know, are you going to make it? Uh, you know, go, like some quite death-defying roads, going to places like Caladort with steep hills and thinking, oh, we're not going to go down there. Uh, but that, I guess that, I, you know, I can imagine, I, I could remember it as a child and seeing how exciting it was. But I think as a parent and, and having those holiday times with your children, which tends to be the time you have the best time with your children, because work tends to overtake you a lot of the time. 
and um, they were very fond memories for me. So I've had a, you know the best memories of mine, including the me memories with my parents and my late father, uh, of being here in Ibiza. So that was a, that must have been a massive inspiration for me to think where I would like to bring up my children and where I'd like to be. Um, and over the years of travelling in Asia, because we, we'd got this migration, we we knew all these people travelling backwards and forwards from Asia. So we'd sort of we had a whole community here. And and as those people were starting to have children, they were starting to settle here as well. So we've we've all ended up, well, I say all, but a good a good load of us from that travelling years in all those Asian countries have, have now settled here and have raised children here, and we've had that sort of hedonistic lifestyle, but yet still maintained quite a decent parenthood. Are you, are you still having a, a slightly hedonistic experience on this island? Because every time I look on Facebook, I sort of see posts about you've been fasting and you've been cleansing and you've been doing all this kind of healthy stuff, and it feels like you've obviously very much uh, sort of, you know, reset yourself. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, uh, how, the, how the tables have turned. You know, that's that's just uh, an age thing as well. I mean, the sort of partying side of it, uh, the certain elements, aspects of it in Ibiza, the, the clubbing side of it, I don't find as attractive anymore. Certainly the sort of super clubby kind of thing and the thousands of people at a party, that's not really where I'm that bothered about being. The smaller parties and things like that. Uh, partying in the day for the 50-year-olds tends to be more conducive I like partying in the day I can go all through the night but it's the sort of sleep deprivation that then just does you more mental health damage you know I don't know it'll, it'll affect my work and things like that so if I can party in the day happy days you know you don't miss a night's sleep I could keep on partying that's that's fine um, I think that just makes utter utter sense I mean everybody that's got a kind of brain on their shoulders these days is more into sort of daytime parties because Exactly, you know, even if you've got no hangover, if you haven't slept all night, you still feel pretty similar and incredibly spaced out and pretty unable to tackle life's general uh, sort of day's doings, particularly with regards to your work. Yeah, 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 and day becomes a new night and uh, if it doesn't affect your work, then it's more sustainable, isn't it? And, uh, you know, then, I, then I've just fine-tuned myself over the years. I've, I've had uh, years where, you know, I had four years. When, when I first set up the charity, actually, I went completely drug-free. That was a massive change for me. I just said no to everything. And, uh, and so that was quite life-changing. And I've kept pretty much to that path. There's certain, certain things I don't go near anymore ever since... Uh, ever since starting up the charity I didn't think it was morally morally right being a founder of a charity and, and taking things like cocaine and things like that just doesn't work and uh, and through that I've I've found yeah I've found my own ability to be able to party without taking excesses uh, and then recently I've just turned a corner just giving alcohol a break for hopefully a year I'm on day 79 or something today and, it, and weirdly, I worked out that it is the, it's the first time since probably around 13 that I would have had like a, a sober new year. Or, or that I'd have even had a period of 70 days in my entire life from that period of being about 13 when I started drinking. That I've not had alcohol in my blood. 
And what does that feel like? What, what, you know, what, oh, I don't know. What does that feel yeah. like? <laughs> Enlighten yeah. us. Well, yeah, I mean, it feels really good, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, on energy levels, it seem, I seem up. Um, but, I, you know, I, I just want to experience, I'm setting up a new project at the moment, new business, and I want to experience what it's like to feel your best. As in, you've got no other chemicals that might be doing you in. And, uh, and alcohol is just one of those that, not that I did loads of it, Recently, I've not done loads of it. I've, <laughs> I've done bucket loads in the past, but so, <clears throat> but even just little bits here and there, it's just topping up and topping up, and it's just you know, just maybe not fine tuning you. And, and through practicing more meditation and better diets, you know, a lot of plant food based diets, all sorts of things, and fasting and tuning my body more, a lot of exercise over the last few years, that's been a great eye opener to the sort of energy I get from running and taking time in nature and things like that. And I think it's, yeah, it's been really, really eye-opening, actually, really eye-opening at the moment. And me and quite a number of friends who I'm closely around that have sort of taken that leaf, turned over that leaf of the book or whatever and, and gone sober for X amount of months. I think that's a well an amazing achievement on an island like this one and I think but I think it is really you know the state of play at the moment not just because we're in January and everyone's on the dry January vibe it's you know there's a lot of people not really drinking anymore I mean whenever you go to the IMS now it's you know Pete Tong's given up drinking you know all the kind of chiefs of the kind of guys that are you know really running the show there have all stopped drinking Ben Turner as well and you know a lot of the DJs you know um I think Luciano's like given up drinking. You've got, you know, black coffee. There's a hell of a lot of sober DJs out there now. And it's mm. really, you know, it's not actually that cool uh, to be getting smashed up anymore in the dance music scene. There's a lot of people clubbing so much more consciously and, and not drinking. And I think, you know, it's it's pretty impressive, actually. Mm. I think in a place like this one, um, yeah. to have uh, basically abstained for, well, 79 days is, um, yeah, is seriously good going. And it's obviously giving you wings to be able to achieve more as you say with this new business but I'd like to talk about uh, the reason that you're here today amongst many other ones but you know obviously we've known each other for a, a long time now ever since I got to the island really but I loved the fact I think Which it was, was when? well I'm trying to work out because I it was when uh, you know we went right into, into each other in England at a festival do you remember that and you had a girl working for you with dark hair I can't even remember her name it was a friend of mine from the Manchester crew that I used to hang out with back in Brighton and you were setting up the charity the last night. A DJ saved my life. Yes, yeah. So what? And that was in the, that was in the UK. So we were doing something in the UK. It, we, we went to a festival together of some sort somewhere, and she was working for you, and I was there teaching yoga. But I can't was think. It why. Was it Kimberly? No? She changed her hair so many times and colours. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember what colour it is now, and I can't remember her name. She's the girlfriend of a friend of mine right. from Manchester. But I just remember her being right, there. And she okay. was working for your charity at the time, right. um, and yeah, that's when I first met you and got introduced to the work that you do. And the second time I kind of really encountered uh, the work that you're doing is at Lydia Kimmeling's Happiness Explorer okay. um, event, yeah. where you were also talking and uh, giving the venue for that particular event, which, again, was kind of raising yeah. um, some money for charity. And you, you raised, like, almost half a million pounds now, which is just yeah. quite unbelievable. Tell us a little bit about what Last Night a DJ Saved My Life does. 
Well, it's an ever-changing playing field, that. Um, in essence, we're changing and saving the lives of children in crisis around the world. And uh, we've been going 10 years. This is our 10th anniversary year, so that just adds a little bit of specialness to this year. And uh, we, we started off with the vision to inspire the dance community to give back and use, use Last Night DJ Saved My Life as a platform to enable that, to, to make it easier, to facilitate it. Because we could, we could, when, when I first researched the industry and, and the difference it was making uh, socially, uh, I, I, was, I was shocked 10 years ago to find out that there was virtually no evidence to suggest that there was any sort of fundraising going on or... Or, or, or anything, and, it, and 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 this, and I was going to the IMS and seeing statistics like it's a seven billion dollar industry now, and and it sickened me to think that I've put all my belief in this selfish industry that either it had become, well, it had sort of become because from my initial years in the acid house era, then it was making a difference because it was about social change and it made a huge change to society and that 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 you can't put value on that you know but then beyond that once that sort of had gone in and then it gets commercial then what is it doing and i just not stopped to think about it i guess in my 20s and 30s charity wasn't on my mind you know and uh, i think the last time it probably was was live aid you know in a musical context and thinking about music making a difference it was it was live aid and uh, so we, we created the vehicle which was going to inspire the whole industry into giving back. And over these 10 years, I'm, I'm proud to say that's what we have done. We've had a, an impact on the industry to inspire a lot more of that to be happening today. There seems to be a real surge in social responsibility in all sorts of aspects of the industry, whether it's people taking care of themselves in a wellness whether it's mental health uh whether it's looking at you know the the fact of not enough women in the industry and how that's how that's come about you know they're starting basically the industry starting to wake up and just be a bit more conscious about you know what it's actually doing rather than being this intoxicated sort of cloud and uh, and just whooping at the top of its voice thinking it's mm-hmm. think it's just having a good time and uh, and I, I think within that community all over the world, you know, a lot of us have tuned ourselves in and are pretty conscious and, and want to feel that we can party, but we can actually change lives at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, we can make a difference. But why, I just, why hasn't this happened before in Ibiza though? I mean, this has been going on, this multi-billion dollar industry on this island for a really, really, really long time. And it's only really in the last few years that people have suddenly gone oh, you know, we shouldn't be having plastic straws and we shouldn't be doing this and doing that and, you know, organising the safety of the roads so the mm. clubbers aren't getting mowed down after after amnesia gets kicked out and those kinds of things. There's, there has been a lot of changes, but it still seems quite unfathomable to me that this kind of money has been generated and absolutely nothing is being pumped back into, A, the island or B, yeah, any kind of charitable cause or you know, offsetting basically the footprint of what is quite a muddy 
muddy little uh, murky beast, really, if you think about what is attracted to this island due to the very nature of the dance music industry, which is basically a lot of people taking a lot of drugs. So why, mm. you know, I love what you're doing. I've, I've always, you know, from the moment I understood exactly what it is that you're doing, I think it's an amazing idea, but I, I find it hard to believe that, you know, there hasn't been something like this coming up, you know, previously. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I, I was completely shocked when I researched the subject uh, to find very little evidence. There was, I think, a, an organisation called Dance Aid from Holland who who actually went on and were, were a huge success. I mean, that was in the millions and uh, with some of the big uh, artists from, from Holland who were obviously some of the biggest in the world. And that was focused on raising awareness for AIDS and uh, an AIDS education and financing things around that. So that was one... The, the the only thing that I could I could really find that I thought wow that's a massive difference I don't know you know I don't know where the landscape lies with those today but yeah it, it was it was shocking and disappointing at the same time because I, I just held so much belief in music and I put so much sort of uh, integrity into saying things on a dance floor and hugging each other and it all feeling like you're changing the world and we were changing the world socially in our in our own little worlds and that's what you realize you realize the world you were changing is just your own little bubble uh and you're not thinking outside of that um but turning that on its head now it's really positive what's happening in the industry there is a lot of examples of that i mean I'm talking about the globe. I'm not, you know, because we set it up. It wasn't, it wasn't to tune in Ibiza to being charitable. It was to turn it, tune in the whole industry globally to be charitable. Uh, Ibiza was my starting point, which is probably the hardest one <laughs> to turn around. As I, uh, when I set off, it was really difficult um, for all sorts of other reasons. I mean, uh, you know, I can't say that the Ibiza clubs don't support charities or didn't then because they did. In different ways, a bit of sponsorship of sports teams and things like that. So it's just in, in Spain in general, then the, it's, it, chari- the charity world works completely different. There isn't that many charities here. Mm. It's, it's, it's a different playing field to other areas in Europe. So their culture is not, is not wrapped up in, in the way of charity, let's say. So I was sort of knocking on doors that were always going to be hard to open anyway. We had some great success with Juan from Space and Mark and Lisa who ran We Love. That was our first biggie when we we, we did one trial season. We did a, a night there on the guest list and we raised €6,000. And then we did it the year after and raised 31000 over over their 12 gigs or whatever, just off the guest list. And we were like, wow, you know, that's just people who were going to get in for free, paying five quid, five euros, and, and we're happy to do it. No, you know, no, it's no harm of anybody. And we built wells. We did cleft palate operations. We did music therapy. Um, we paid for school equipment in India. There was so much that we did from that money, and that was our first big one. Let's say. How do you decide who benefits from that money? Obviously, this money is coming from Ibiza. So, what made you decide to give that money to people in Asia? Well, it was a, it was a joint decision between us and the promoters, Mark and Sarah, 
Uh, we, we'd already started working with a few organisations that we've personally been recommended to. So it's uh, uh, how we've organically grown. We've always supported things. There's been a recommendation. So there's, a, there's an element of transparency there that I know if we, if we give that charity X amount, that X amount is going to the cause, basically not falling into that grey area of what everybody associates with charity. Oh, where's it going? And it's not going there. And oh, do Oxfam really do that? And it's 50% expenses and all that. I didn't, I didn't want last night DJ to fall into that trap because you sort of tend to think people in the dance music in, industry are a bit savvy, a bit sharp. You know, I certainly see myself as being a bit sharp in certain aspects that, you know, you don't want to be ripped off. And so we, we set about making sure we really researched the smaller charities that we were going to work with. And in some cases, they're so grassroots, you're almost delivering what you're, what you're, the, the, the difference you're going to make, you're actually going to deliver, you know, that might be some equipment. So, you, you know, you're taking that to the cause themselves or you're, you're, yeah, you're financing the school books, as in you're literally buying the school books and then you're delivering them to the school. So there's no middleman involved. I, I did see a really lovely um, fundraiser for the wildfires of Australia at Gorana in Santillaria with lots of the DJs from the island mm. playing this week. And one of the first questions on Facebook, of course, from one of the savvy little uh, creatures that lives here was, um, you know, where's the money going and how are we going to know that it basically arrives and they immediately got back and said you know this is the charity it's going to go to and the day after printed the receipt of the payment to the charity that it had gone to and I just thought that was a really nice touch to you know see uh, in black and white basically where that 20,000 euros went to in the direct aftermath of the event so that was a nice thing that they did there which was you know heralded by Scott Gray from Bomb and and, uh, yeah our ambassador yeah, Scott's one of our leading ambassadors. He's been a, an ambassador of ours as a DJ and as an artist as well for quite a number of years now. Scott's raised thousands for us, you know, lost count, probably close on 15,000 or something like that. So, yeah, not surprising for Scott to put on an event that's, uh, that's helping others. And I think, yeah, that as, as I said, there's, there's so much more evidence now where a natural disaster happens and there's just pockets of DJs all over the world and events that seem to pop up similar to that one that are helping. Well, years ago, that didn't seem to happen. So it's become more normal that it happens and it's become more normal that DJs take part in them. I think I remember Charlie Chester doing something actually for the tsunami as well in Thailand because uh, I don't know who was telling me about that a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, it just is a thing, isn't it? And it's a great way when DJs are getting paid like what... 50 grand a set or whatever at like Amnesia or, you know, Space Terrace back in the day, you know, some really big, big figures were mm. knocking around for, you know, sort of footballers wages, but probably even, even bigger for some of the, the huge artists that maybe even play someone like Ushuaia now. I'd love to know what the, you know, I'd love to see that published, like we'd get the MPs or the BBC staff of England that kind of pay payroll for that, because it would just be interesting to know, um, obviously, what, what money is being thrown around in that department these days. Yeah, I mean, there, there is. There's huge, huge amounts. Um, I think I, I think to be fair on the DJs, um, there's a lot of the bigger ones, you know, maybe it's uh, David Guetta's, Calvin Harris and things like that. You know, you probably would find that they're actually, they do donate quite a lot back to charities or donate their time 
you know, we've had people like Fatboy Slim and, and Carl and people like that donate their time and do events in the Houses of Parliament with us to, to raise awareness for all sorts of things. And, um, you know, there's no fees change hands, but it's great for us. It raises the awareness of our charity. They've done it with the goodness of the heart to, to do that and change the lives of young people in, in those, for instances. Uh, but a, a lot of the time you find that certain DJs don't want to be shouting about it. They, they, they do it quite silently in the back. And the reason why they do that is because they don't want a million and one phone calls from every charity in the world because they say, can you do this gig, can you do that gig? And I was, I was once sat in a meeting with um, Gary Blackburn, who was um, Norman's, Fatboy Slim's manager, and he was telling me, you know, look, do you realise how many charity requests we get for Norman, like a week? And I can't remember what it was at that time. It was like 25 a day or so. It was just something silly. And, and, you know, and here am I, cap in hand, going in and asking Norman to do something. But it was only through uh, one of our fellow trustees w- was Norman's tour manager, ex-tour manager. So we were, we were on a friendly tip. But it made me realise that, you know, when they say no to charity, you know, they might have said yes to charity, but they've got to say no to some because what, what are they going to do? They've only got 365 days in a year and they can't give all their time away. So... Yeah, there's a lot we don't know about. We don't see the difference that the DJs are making because they don't make it public. And, I'm, and I've become aware of that now, where I've been cynical in the past. I've realised through experience that there is a lot of cases where music is making a difference, but it's just not being shouted about. Mm. You know, and I, which I think turns, turns it around a little bit more mm. as to what you'd expect. And then you get the, then you get the others that want to shout about it and want to feel like they've been involved in charity because it's going to promote them in some way you know look at me I'm looking good mm. you know you get those examples which are the which are the worst ones as well mm. I mean you did that great uh, set for peace I, I, I seem to recall at uh, the nightmares on wax um, set for love set for love set for peace same same mm. thing really yeah well, <laughs> no, we did, that. We did that a few years ago it just yeah I, that was a really lovely thing that you did and I just remember that being like a really big highlight of last summer um, so what have you got coming up this year what have we got coming up this year well we're definitely going to push Set for Love which is in some ways the new version of Set for Peace only Set for Love is out there to raise funds rather than uh, raise awareness for peace and it, with those funds it goes off to a number of our different campaigns which are doing everything from building wells to recycling music equipment for young people in different youth projects. And we, that's what we had the great success of in Las Dallas. In fact, that was the launch gig for that campaign global event, if you like. That's, that's something we're going to push this year to happen in many places around the world, including Ibiza again. And it may be more than one gig in Ibiza. Um, we're going to really put a focus in to gather all the supporters of ours over the last 10 years. DJs, promoters, record labels, people, just everyday supporters, donors, everybody, and re-engage them all this year to do something for Last Night a DJ. 
Um, so that's going to make it quite epic as far as the amount of things that are possibly going to happen. We're just at that very beginning stages of, of this and just getting the material ready to sort of shout from the rafters, tell everybody it's our 10th anniversary, get back involved, let's make the biggest difference we've ever made, get all the magazines on board. Because after 10 years, we've, we've actually been quite quiet in the background. We've done some pretty quite wild uh, off-the-wall fundraising events and, and you know, breaking record world records for the world's highest DJ set on Kilimanjaro, not just for ourselves, but to build a special needs children's home. Now, how Who was many, involved in that? That was George Nightmares on Wax. So, you know, we broke the record. That's just the quirky side of it because we, we, we feel it will give more publicity, which it did. You know, then we've got our own personal challenges because we want to climb a mountain that's really difficult. Uh, and then we've got the kickback. We want why are we doing it? Well, we want to save the lives of some, you know, children in need. Which how did you get all that gear up that hill? That's my question. Well, I'd I'd be lying if I said I carried it. You know, when you go on those sort of expeditions, you've got porters. I mean, we had. Let me think. How many? What there was? There was about sixteen of us. And then there was about 50, 58 porters and guides. So it was a team of about 70 people that went up there. But hence we had a party, because there was enough of us to have a party. So someone was dragging some great big unit like sound system on their back up Kilimanjaro. Um, no, no. Very fortunately, I was introduced by DJ Dawley, actually and Danny Savage, they introduced me to a company called Soundbox, who produced the world's loudest Bluetooth speaker, which is 120 decibels, and it happens to come with its own backpack. And it's got a battery that lasts 40 hours. So basically you could take this thing anywhere and have a, have a, a bloody good party. And, and that was just, it was a dream come true for me because I was, I was struggling myself to think, how am I going to get the sound system up there? It's, it's not just getting the sound system, obviously, then it's how you're going to power the sound system and, and generators don't work at a certain altitude. It's really because there's not enough oxygen and there's all these things you get your head round that I didn't know when I just came up with the wacky idea to do it. But no, in the end, it was a battery-powered sound system and uh, and then Pioneer gave us a set of decks, the XDJ R2s, which are an amazing little all-in-one unit. Uh, and then I had a battery pack, we weighed about five kilos. So the decks plugged into the battery pack. The speaker was powered itself, powered itself on its own battery. A wire between the two, bang, free party. Uh, so, you know, in terms of weight, you know, that's probably not a lot, really. The speaker weighed 15 kilos. The deck's probably 10 kilos. You know, probably 30 kilos was the party package. So we didn't need we didn't need to set up a whole massive sound system and things like that. Um, you know, we've got slightly bigger plans for the next one, but uh, yeah, we're gonna we want we want to take we want to take the same sort of crew of people and open it up to lots more people to go to the world's highest lake in Nepal in the Annapurna Range to break the record for the world's highest lakeside party and at the same time help local children in Nepal and have an amazing adventure while you're doing it. And it's stunning up there. And it's going to be called the Sonic Adventure. And yeah, it's open to the public. It's open to people to come on it. Everybody's got a fundraise at least a £1,000 to be on there. 
and pay their own way. But yeah, those kind of projects are very much inspiring, you know, where you can, yeah, you can do something with music and then you can save and change lives. And that's something that we're doing this year. So that's another one for last night, a DJ saved my life, you know. So it's a Who's mixture. coming on that? Which DJs are you taking with you? Well, at the moment, I've got, I mean, discussions with George again, Nightmares on Wax, who's always my favourite because he's just supported us. He's another incredible ambassador from Ibiza that has just raised thousands and inspired loads of others. So George is on the top of the list, but it doesn't have to be one DJ. You know, there might be people like Scott from Melon Bomb. Scott's also said he'd be quite keen to come because it's October the 22nd to November the 4th. So it falls outside of the Ibiza season. So it's ideal for everybody. Um, I'm going to talk to people like Seth Troxler and people like that and just put it out there, really. And also, I've met a couple of the leading artists, DJ Ranzin in um, Nepal, in Kathmandu. So the leading electronic artists of, of Nepal are also going to be a part of it and some of the leading sort of musicians, multi-instrumentalists. So a thousand pounds, you've got to raise a thousand pounds, you can come on this holiday of a lifetime essentially and put something back. And what are the projects that you tackle along the way when you're there with these people? Well, what we're we're raising funds for is a women's stroke girls empowerment centre. So it's it's helping girls that have come off the street or been involved in things like sex slavery, which is a huge problem in uh, in Nepal. And I've got quite a few friends who are working in that field of uh, trauma therapy. So they, uh, they're working with the girls in certain centres that have been built to, yeah, not only get them over the traumas that they face, but then rebuild them to, you know, to redesign their lives and um, set about a healthy life for themselves. And that's what we're going to focus on. Because when, we, when, we, when we've worked in... Tanzania we've done a lot with boys and boys homes and we thought right, it's time to focus on the girls so yeah it's, it's changing the lives of young girls in Nepal yeah Johnny I'm, I'm a little bit blown away by this I remember seeing obviously yeah the, the highest set and I remember seeing George and you guys all scrambling up that hill on Facebook in the video and it's it is just beautiful what you what you're doing and obviously how you've completely and utterly changed everything like in terms of your perspective and the way that you see the island and the work that you do here and yeah, I you know you definitely qualify in my in my eyes as a reset rebel for this podcast, and I'm so so happy that you finally found the time, or I finally found the time, we finally found the time to get together and have this conversation because I think yeah, there's a lot of people out there would be really really keen to um, to come. And where can they find the information about joining that trip to Nepal? They can find it on actually it's a Facebook group called Follow Your Heart Productions, which is producing the event. And also on the website, which will be live very soon, which will be followyourheartproductions.com. Um, outside of that, there'll be information on last night DJ Save My Life.org as well. Um, it'll be all over the internet. Yeah, watch this space. Yeah, it's really exciting, actually. Really, I'm, you know, I've been up there twice this year, and to be in the vastness of the Himalayas and out there at 5,000 meters is very awe inspiring, and yeah. Certainly, yeah, it's a it, it's from sea level Ibiza to five thousand meters is is a good experience for anybody. Yeah, is there much altitude sickness going on? Um, I've not had it, uh, but I've seen other people who have. Not loads of people, but I mean, our guide actually got it last time. Last time we were up there, 
so it can happen to all different people but it's you know it's, it's preventable as well there's certain uh, diamox and things you can take to prevent it and there's certain methods of how you eat and drink and you know prepare yourself and you take your time going up to altitude you don't rush it slowly slowly poly poly as they say in uh, in africa poly poly uh, so there's yeah you can you can you can win over it basically yeah it's not something to be scared of it's more something to look forward to going into the abyss of blue mountains it's it really is another world up there wow. yeah well, Johnny, I really appreciate your time today and um, that sounds like something I might actually be interested in myself, so we'll have a chat. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Reset Rebel podcast. We're going to put some more details on our website as well, which is www.theresetrebel.com. Thank you so much, Johnny. Thank you very much, Joe. Reset Rebel. Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. Reset Rebel It's the Reset Rebel